We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. And I'm producer Faye Adabita. We're dipping back into a stack of great reads from 2023 to immerse ourselves in over the festive season. It's the second instalment of our selection of holiday reads. If you're looking for gift inspiration this holiday season, we have an hour coming up packed with some very smart ideas, drawn from some of the most compelling conversations we've had on Intelligence Squared over the last 12 months. What books are we talking about here, Faye? So today we're going to be hearing from two cultural heavyweights, Mary Beard and Rory Stewart, about the shape of politics, both modern and ancient, with highlights from their recent onstage event, Power in Politics, from the Caesars to Sunak. And we'll also be revisiting our chat with Tomiwa Owolade, whose book, This Is Not America, Why Black Lives in Britain Matter, discusses the outlook for anti-racism in the UK. But first, we're heading to China and a conversation with journalist and author Tanya Brannigan. Her book, Red Memory, tells the story of China's drive towards modernization and the oppressive political movement born in the 1960s that defined it, the Cultural Revolution. Red Memory also explores the long shadow it has cast over subsequent generations. Tanya Brannigan was stationed in Beijing for The Guardian newspaper over many years. When she came to Intelligence Squared back in February 2023, she was joined by former BBC China editor Carrie Gracie to talk about the themes of the book. Tanya, I suppose your central theme, in a way, in this book is that although the decade of the Cultural Revolution has been deliberately forgotten to a large degree in China, it still propels, shapes so much of what happens in China in the present every day. So let's take a contemporary issue, the U-turn on zero COVID, which is, of course, a huge story in China and touching every aspect of life there. How does the shadow of the Cultural Revolution still fall on that? Well, I think one thing that's really striking is that we saw actually people in China uh, referring to the Cultural Revolution in the context of zero COVID. So when we saw these really unusual protests right across cities about the zero COVID policies prior to the U-turn, it wasn't just people saying acts the lockdowns and so forth. But in a few places, there are actually people holding up signs saying, we want reform, not the cultural revolution. And 
So although it's this subject that really isn't discussed at an official level, it is very much there. And what did they mean, we want reform, not the Cultural Revolution? What was Cultural Revolution about their COVID experience? Well, they can see the, the parallels, the sort of the contemporary resonance in the way that you have this extraordinary um, level of control from the state, and particularly that we've seen under Xi Jinping, who is a man so fundamentally formed by the Cultural Revolution and the experiences that he and his family had in it. Um, one of the sort of striking things, of course, is that his father, who was this revered sort of revolutionary figure, one of the people who had been purged, in fact, even before the Cultural Revolution and then came back um, afterwards, his father and other party elders tried really hard uh, to move away from strongman rule in the wake of the Cultural Revolution. And yet we've seen she kind of dismantling the sort of safeguards, you might say, that were put in place. So the kind of the collectivization, these unwritten norms over things like term limits. We've seen she embarking on a third term. And we're seeing really a ruler who's not constrained by those concerns about consensus, about working together anymore, um, who has the national media sort of lauding him and had associated him, of course, so closely uh, with the zero COVID so message. These were, so if I'm reading you correctly, you mean there's a sense that there were huge mistakes being made, which had a national impact and a personal impact for all 1.4 billion people in China, and that these were really the mistakes of one individual at the top of a totalitarian almost structure. Yes, that it felt as if power was just much less constrained than it had been before. I mean, that might sound odd, perhaps, to people sort of looking at a system that has been run by the Communist Party for so long. But there was a time in China where there was more space for civil society, there was more openness, more tolerance. And we've seen a return to a much more sort of ideological style, much greater party control of sort of spheres that it really had retreated from to some degree, like civil society and academia, um, but also much more surprisingly, perhaps sort of business and the arts and entertainment. And actually concern over space, culture. people's individual lives. I mean, this is something you know, that really resonated with me at the whole zero COVID kind of conversation about cultural revolution. Because friends of mine in China were saying to me, oh my gosh, we've gone back to the cultural revolution. People can just burst into your home and drag you out and you have no control. You don't know why it's so arbitrary. It was all of that sense of traumatic unsafety. Yes, that feeling that there was really no space that was left to you because that was something that the party had actually allowed people. If, if, if you weren't going to go on the street and uh, demand your rights. You know, there was a degree of personal space, of personal liberty you had. And yet we've seen, even with things like sort of movies, that they've become much more sort of straightened, that uh, we've seen um, much more concern about sexuality, for example. All of these things, which perhaps people had sort of clawed out an amount of space for themselves, it feels as if that was being taken away anyway. And as you say, with zero COVID, that's really laid bare, this sense that you're so powerless before and, the state. And yet, to come to the book again, you say in the book, it's a decade, 1966 to 76, a decade that has disappeared. So there's that strange paradox that it's a decade that's driving everything, shaping everything, propelling, and that is back in all of these respects that you've just mentioned. And yet it's disappeared. So... I want to talk about the amnesia and sense of disappearance in a moment, but to the extent that it has disappeared, you know, haul it back onto the table between us and tell us 
What happened in that decade? What is it that disappeared that needs to be remembered? It's an absolutely devastating time. I mean, we see two million people die 36 million people more are hounded, um, either for supposed political crimes, sometimes just really accidents of birth. They were perhaps born into a landlord's family. You've actually seen more devastating moments in China if you just count the death toll. Um, but I think what's really staggering about the Cultural Revolution is that it ripples out across the whole country and it affects everybody. And it's felt at the most intimate level as well. So it begins as an emperor's reassertion of power. Uh, Mao is worried about his position following the Great Leap Forward. He launched this attempt to industrialise and collectivise the economy, but it was just so insanely sort of hubristic that it ends in complete disaster. And it's Tens. in every classroom and every bedroom and every breakfast table by the end of it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, tens of millions of people die in the, the Great Leap Forward. He's worried about his position. He's worried about his legacy. Um, and he sets out to eradicate any form of opposition within the party. Uh, but he does this critically by bringing in the masses, by using this mass sentiment. There's already a personality cult that's built up around him. You know, Mao is the red sun in our hearts. He's he's there everywhere. I mean, you wake up in the morning, he's on the pillows, he's on your mirror. Um he uses this extraordinary veneration in which he's held and he wields it against the party. And so both of his heirs apparent will die before the decade is out. Um, but because it's carried out through the people, uh, it ripples out and we see farmers dying. We see not just revered scholars and artists dying, um, but infants even in some cases being killed because of their sort of class background as horrific um, as that is. And so it's the intimate treacheries, I think, that that play out that are often really sort of the most devastating people. It's when husbands are turning on wives. It's when colleagues and friends are sort of turning upon each other, sort of households really ripped apart by this. And that, in some ways, is, I think, what people find it hardest to move past. And also, because it sort of moves at such dizzying speed, it's hard to keep up with. And this is an ideological crusade for Mao as well. He wants to purify the nation, purifies its hearts and souls, make these people into the sort of the real communists he believes they should be. Uh, and as this ripples out, we just sort of see these extraordinary levels of fervour that are impossible to, for us to understand. I mean, things like... Um, police at one point directing traffic with copies of the Little Red Book rather than batons because only Mao's words can show you where to go. It's a, a level of absurdity and horror combined that is really sort of hard for us to imagine, I think. It's a kind of religious fanaticism, isn't it? It really is, yes. Um, and it, it begins, Mao uses as his shock troops, not just the people, but specifically young people and, and children. We're talking very young teenagers, some sort of 13 or 14. Uh, we see these sort of political vigilante groups forming, red guards who sweep through the cities and tear down temples, but also are beating and murdering teachers and scholars and artists and so forth. It's a just a horrific moment. And then as it ripples out, um, we see factional fighting between them. And even when that initial wave of Red Guard violence is over, then we go on to see this sort of factional turmoil um, and a more orderly, but in fact, in some ways, more deadly uh, phase of people being executed as counter-revolutionaries or for supposedly being involved in conspiracies, which in some cases 
we're told that, you know, these conspiracies are so sinister because they don't even know they're a part of it. So let's talk about individual lives then, because this comes down, even in a country of 1.4 billion people, to individuals, as you've explained so articulately. You wrote the book through interviewing, and of course these people are now in their 50s or 60s um, who lived through it as teenage shock troops. Um, what, what did they say about it? What were their recollections and how did they relive? Well, of course, many people, most people, don't really want to talk about it. Um, and what fascinated me was that there were these people who didn't necessarily want to talk about it, but I think felt they had to. Um, and so it's a very mixed picture. There are people who still think the Cultural Revolution was right. And that the only really thing that really went wrong with it was that it ended. And yes, there shouldn't have been so much violence, but Mao was quite right to sort of believe in this purity. There are also people who are deeply reflective about what they did. Um, so I start the book um, really where I began um, in finding out about the Cultural Revolution uh, with a painter called Xu Weixin, a, a wonderful painter who's done these immense sort of two and a half metre tall portraits of people who died in the Cultural Revolution. And he told me that the, the first in the series, as far as he was concerned, was the very first picture he remembers drawing at the age of seven or eight. Um, he'd been told that his school teacher, who he'd liked very much, was actually the daughter of a landlord. And he was so shocked by his naivety in the moment that he had believed in this lovely woman that he drew this hideous caricature of her and pinned it up to the blackboard. And she walked in and saw it, and he says he just remembers her turning white because, of course, at that point, as a small child, he didn't really realise where it could lead. But even that early in the Cultural Revolution, it was very clear to her that it could mean disgrace, being ousted. And ultimately, of course, many teachers paid their price with their lives. So that was a, a drawing. But you, you also went on to others who actively denounced teachers or were involved in violence. Yes, absolutely. And who are now trying to reckon with that. Um, and I think in many cases find it hard, even as they address it, perhaps to fully acknowledge everything or the full implications of what they did. I mean, they struggle with it very understandably. I think it would be easy for people perhaps to judge them. But I don't think any of us can imagine what it was like to be 13 or 14 years old, to have this man that you revered as a, a god telling you that it was your duty to see these, this chaos unfurl around you. And in many cases, I mean, one of the most striking things to me was uh, my sort of first interviewee in the book, who was a young girl at the time, talking about how she felt at the time that she wasn't brave enough because she wasn't willing to beat teachers up. You know, she was attending these things, but she wasn't so she willing felt to attack them. in the moment and she felt, that she didn't she, she felt it have wasn't the right. She felt it wasn't right, but there was also a part of her that was thinking you know, should I be doing this? Why am I Am I just not strong enough? So if she didn't beat her teachers, why is she still obsessing about the Cultural Revolution now, revisiting it in her mind? Because at that stage, even criticising a teacher could sort of open the door to so much worse. Um, being a red guard, seeing what was happening, going to struggle sessions... Um, and I think as well the ambivalence, because in some ways for her, it was a time of great freedom. She was a young teenage girl and she was travelling the country with her friends. She said in some ways at times it felt almost more like sightseeing or a holiday. And yet at the same time, they also believed that they were on this revolutionary mission and it was their duty to bring the country to this kind of state of it's great so ideological isn't it? purity. Because it's got not just the savage 
blood baths and the struggle sessions, but it's also got aspects of music festival and interrailing holiday and young people kind of having fun together. Yeah, and it's very hard for us to imagine. And I think, as I said, very easy to judge, but I think it's just impossible for us to know what we would have done in those circumstances. Well, especially really difficult. I was just listening to you and thinking, how difficult would it be to try to re-explore the map of what was going on when there's no actual historical context that is freely available or discussed or processed um, as a society. You've got nothing, you've got nowhere to kind of anchor yourself, have you, as you explore? Exactly. And I think some of these people spoke out precisely because at the time I started writing, we were seeing a few more voices becoming evident, partly, I think, because of the internet. It was... Mm easier to share your story. Yeah, I found Um, that really interesting because I made a documentary series in 1996 on the 30th anniversary of the outbreak of the Cultural Revolution, um, which is obviously a pre-internet age. And then it was very interesting to me to read your interviews, which are slightly post the arrival of the internet. Yes, I think there was that sense that people were more able to speak out and that was encouraging others. Um, But also I think age perhaps, getting older and thinking about what had happened and wanting to record it and that sense that it just wasn't anywhere there in society. So what sort of marks the people in the book out, I guess, are they, they, they are the ones who want to talk about it, whether because they believe that actually there are positive lessons to be learnt from the Cultural Revolution, as, as bizarre as that might sound to us. You know, they they see it as a time when they were able to speak out um, in a way they couldn't now, and they see it as a time when there was greater respect for working people and less inequality and so forth. Um, so I think in many cases as well, it's, it's driven by their view of the present. Inevitably, part of the urge to speak out about what happened then is a sense of what the present is like and what it could be. Um, And for people on the other side of the argument who see the Cultural Revolution as a warning, that's part of it too. They think, well, if we don't remember it, we may end up repeating it. And so for those reasons too, people want to keep it alive. And then for some people, it's so deeply personal. So um, in the case of the young man who denounced his mother, I mean, he was 17. He sent her to her death, he and his father, by revealing that she'd denounced Chairman Mao. And I don't think many of us could live with that knowledge. So to him, he wanted to keep that alive, um, to protect his mother's grave initially, and perhaps just to be true to his memory of her in a way that he hadn't been able to be true to her when she was alive. Tanya Brannigan there speaking to Carrie Gracie about the book Red Memory back in February 2023. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What's next, V? We're revisiting October of this year, when we heard from writer Tomiwa Oolade. He just published his book, This Is Not America, Why Black Lives in Britain Matter. It's a book exploring the nuances of how we approach issues of identity and anti-racism, and as the title suggests, it asks whether the US's prominent voice in the conversation really works as a one-size-fits-all model for other nations. Joining Tamiwa in conversation was the journalist, broadcaster and commentator Inea Falaran-Aman. Let's hear some of what they had to say. I mean, this sounds like a very particular provocation, a particular response to a, a particular context at the moment. Could you just elaborate on your central argument of the book? Yeah, thank you, Inaya. The central argument of my book is that when we talk about race and identity, we need to talk about it within a particular context. And all too often, um, when we talk about race and identity in the UK, we do it through an American perspective. So the very idea of the book came to me in the summer of 2020 when I observed that many of the people that were rightly um, pointing out the injustice of the murder of George Floyd in the UK emphasized an American way of looking at race, even when they were talking about race within a British context. To give one concrete example, I saw many well-meaning progressive activists using terms like BIPOC to describe the condition and experiences of ethnic minority people in the UK. Um, for those of you that don't know, BIPOC is an acronym that stands for Black Indigenous People of Colour. Um, a term like that would make sense in America because, of course, America has historically discriminated against and oppressed its um, native American and various indigenous communities. But a term like BIPOC in a British context, I would argue, carries with it a more far-right resonance. Um, so the irony is that you had many well-meaning progressive activists using a term that you would expect somebody like Nick Griffin, the former leader of the BNP, to use. 
Um, and I think that particular example vividly illustrates a more wider problem, which is that all too often when we think and talk about race in the UK, we do it through an American perspective. So we also had many protesters in Oxford Street um, using phrases like, hands up, don't shoot. Uh, when, of course, um, the sort of military culture, the sort of martial culture of American police simply doesn't apply to British police. Um, so that's one element of my argument. Um, the particular experiences of black Americans in terms of their history of institutionalized segregation simply doesn't apply to a UK context. Um, black American people, um, you could argue, are one of the most indigenous communities in America. Um, the average black American can trace their ancestry further back than the average white American. Whereas in the UK, the um, most black British people are either immigrants or the children of immigrants. Um, so the black, so black British people are, are in essence an immigrant community, um, and that's simply not the case in America. Um, the other part of my book, um, the other thing which I seek to emphasize is that when we talk about black British identity, we need to do it in a more nuanced way. So there isn't one singular black British identity. Um, the experiences, for example, of black Caribbean people are very different to the experiences of black African people in terms of things like education. So for example, black African pupils have um, a higher GCSE and A-level attainment than black Caribbean pupils. And black Caribbean pupils are more than three times more likely to be excluded from schools than black African pupils. So if we genuinely care about the inequalities in our society, we need to be more specific in our focus. And we also need to emphasize the facts that race is not the only source of inequality in British society. No, uh, re really fascinating. I, I mean, so essentially, you know, what you're arguing is that whilst there was many legitimate um, concerns and attention raised to the subject of racism, a very important one in many parts of the world. The the way in which the term kind of black was uh, particularly seen through an American lens, but it had a, a homogenizing effect mm. where we, we, we didn't pay mm. attention to how um, the context in the UK was different. So on that point, could you just elaborate on, on what are the more specific ways in which the UK context um, is different? You mentioned the fact that um, you know, America had segregation and, and slavery, but, but what, what are those, tease out more of what those differences are. Okay, yeah. Um, I think another important difference is a demographic one. Um, so in America, um, 13% of the American population is black, whereas in the UK, the black population only constitutes um, around 4% of the population. Um, I think another important thing to emphasize within that is that there are so many cities and towns in America where the majority of the population is black, whereas in the UK, the um, city with the um, largest share of the black population is London. Um, and London only has about 14% um, of its population, which is black. Um, so in America, 
it's much easier to have an exclusively black social circle than it is in the UK. Um, and I think that matters because that's illustrative of the legacy of segregation, um, which is passed down to contemporary in America. But that, that particular context simply doesn't apply to the UK. Because I think another thing to emphasize is that um, the, the, pop, the share of the UK population is 4%, but um, around 30 years ago, it was only about 1% of the population which is black. Um, so there's always been a very tiny percentage of the UK population, which is black. Whereas in America, um, the share of the black population since America became a republic has been between 12, 13% to 19%. Um, so so there, there is a massive demographic difference between um, the experiences of black Americans and the experiences of black British people. I think another important difference worth emphasizing is that in the UK, there are twice as many Asian people as there are black people, um, whereas in America, it's the other way around. So in America, the share of the population, which is Asian, is 6%. Um, so twice as fewer um, as the black population. Um, but all too often when we talk about race and ethnicity in a UK perspective, we emphasize the black experience and don't pay any attention to the experiences of British Indian people, British Chinese people. And I think it's worth paying attention to them as well because their experiences are quite different to the experiences of black Caribbean people. And even within the Asian, the um, British Asian um, community, um, there are important differences between, say, um, the experiences of British Pakistani people and the experiences of British Indian people when it comes to things like education. Um, so I think um, when we look at race through that Americanized, homogenizing perspective, we lose the nuances within the ethnic minority population in the UK. And when we do that, we can't really... Um, specifically address the inequalities in British society. Mm. So just before we get onto that um, subject about inequalities, which I think is a really central point to this conversation, I mean, some people would push back and say in many ways, you know, whilst there are those kind of differences that are, are important to highlight, but in some very important ways, Britain and America are, are very similar, or at least, and their histories have always often gone aligned together. So for example, I mean, America being a former uh, British colony, uh, or also the fact that whilst America had uh, slavery on its soil, Britain exported it uh, to the colonies. And, you know, whilst African-Americans came to uh, America through the transatlantic slave trade, that, that history is quite similar to uh, British Caribbeans who were taken involuntarily to the Caribbeans and then, you know, and then came to the UK, who a country they saw as their own society. So uh, what do you say to those who say, actually, um, there are very important similarities as to why we our, our histories around race um, are intertwined? Yeah, and I would agree those similarities do exist. Um, what I would push back against is the idea that just because that there are some similarities, we should also not acknowledge the very important differences as well. So I would agree that in terms of slavery, um, the experiences of 
Black Caribbean people is quite similar to the experiences of Black American people in terms of that particular shared history of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, but as you said earlier, um, the difference is that um, slavery was um, practiced on British um, plantations away from the metropole, which is different to the experiences of Black Americans where slavery was practiced on the mainland. Um, I think another thing worth emphasizing is that what some what a lot of people don't know is that as of today there are twice as many black african people in the uk as there are black caribbean people so up until about 25 years ago the majority of the black british population um were black caribbean black caribbean people whereas um today the majority are black africans and that's because of the massive influx of immigration over the past 25 years and black african people don't have that particular historical um legacy of being of having their ancestors transported during the transatlantic slave trade um and and i think it's i think it's important to emphasize that because um that particular historical trauma simply isn't the same for black African people. Um, which is not to say that black African people don't have any sort of negative experiences of Britain. In, in terms of Africa, there is the history of colonialism, but I think that's different to the experiences of black Caribbean people. Um, and many of the, um, in fact, all of the immigrants that came from Africa over the past 25 years came from independent countries. They didn't come from countries that were under the um, rule of the UK, which is very different to the experiences of Black Caribbean people that came over to the UK during the 1950s. They came as British subjects. Um, they were automatically entitled to British citizenship um, when they came during the 1950s, whereas Black African people came as immigrants from um, an independent country. Um, and I think those historical differences are worth emphasizing when we talk about um, the experiences of Black British people. Mm. So ju just going off of that same point about the, the differences between uh, Black Caribbean uh, people, uh, Black British Caribbean and Black uh, British African people, because I think some of the discussion over the last uh, couple of years has been about this idea, which I think you've touched upon before as well, that disparity fallacy, which or this idea that all disparities um, may be due to, to racism. Um, and that actually uh, increasingly people are re-looking at that and actually thinking maybe there are other factors that contribute to racial and ethnic disparities. But when you just mentioned there about um, the differences between uh, Black Caribbeans in the UK and, and, and Africans, is, in a way, does that not highlight the importance of, of racism when it comes to those disparities? Because a lot of those Black Caribbean and Black Africans come to Britain with uh, um, that kind of immigrant optimism. Uh, they, they, they have that very strong sense of rootedness in their identity and history. 
And on top of that, um, they they might have um, oftentimes, I know many black uh, West African Brits whose family within West Africa are actually middle class, or upper middle class, even though they might be in poverty in the UK, they have a lot of that kind of cultural capital. And so doesn't that kind of reveal uh, the, the, the really difficult complexities in, in mm. unweaving all of, of those course. nuances? Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, I, I think one of the reasons why Black Caribbean pupils struggle um, compared to Black African pupils, I think one of the reasons um, might partly be because of the legacy of racism that many Black Caribbean people experienced um, in terms of the education system in the 50s and 60s. Um, because many Black Black Caribbean pupils um, it, during that time were unfairly consigned to special educational schools. Um, and I think that that has led to a kind of mistrust within the education system, um, possibly, which, which is still being, um, which, which is still sort of evolving. Whereas with Black African people, I think I think immigrant optimism is is the um, absolutely the right phrase to use because there is that that's the reason why many of them immigrated to the UK in the first place because they wanted a better education for their children, um, and I think one way you see um, this manifesting itself is the um, the massive extent to which many of the grammar schools in Kent, um, in, in areas, in, in areas in Kent are, are being, um, are, are, are sort of, um, well, the, the many black African people, um, are, are trying to get their kids into grammar schools in Kent, um, especially black African, um, families that live in what I call in my book, the, um, black African Riviera. Um, so that strip and, Southeast London um, that connects areas like Peckham, Woolwich and Thamesmead. Um, many of their children are going to grammar schools in Kent. And I think the reason why that's the case is because um, social mobility is absolutely um, an integral part of their identity, um, trying to better themselves, trying to um, emphasize the importance of education. Um, which is not to say that this is not this this is um i i should emphasize that this is th these are generalities so of course there are many black caribbean pupils that are doing extremely well in education and black caribbean families that are doing um that are emphasizing the importance of education um alternatively there are also many black african pupils that are struggling in, in education as well these are generalities and I should also emphasize that in the past as well, uh, many Black Caribbean families in the 50s and 60s also emphasized the importance of education, but they were betrayed by the education system uh, because of the racism of those institutions. Um, and, and I think it's also worth emphasizing that uh, because all too often many people say that this is just a class issue, that um, it's that black African people are just middle class um, and that's why they tend to do better in terms of education than black Caribbean um, people. 
but I think if, if even if you look, uh, even if you control for things like class as well, you still see these differences as well. Um, so black African pupils on free school meals um, tend to do better than black Caribbean pupils on free school meals as well. Tomiwa Owolade there, speaking to Inea Folaren Aman about his book, This Is Not America, Why Black Lives in Britain Matter. Two very timely conversations about the world we live in, and we're about to dip into another, but one with its eyes sweeping across a few more millennia of history. To close out the year, we put together classicist, author and broadcaster Mary Beard with former politician Rory Stewart. Mary Beard is Professor of Classics at Cambridge University. Her latest book is Emperor of Rome ruling the ancient Roman world, which analyzes the excesses and wild tales that surround our understanding of the imperial leaders of the Roman Empire. And Rory Stewart may now be best known as one half of the hugely popular The Rest Is Politics podcast. He served as an international diplomat before becoming a conservative MP for a decade from 2009 to 2019, during which time he challenged Boris Johnson for a shot at leading the country, and he also later ran for London mayor. He knows a thing or two about politics, much of which you can find in his recent book, Politics on the Edge. The two of them joined Intelligence Squared, live on stage at Cadogan Hall, in mid-November 2023, to share their perspectives for our event, Power and Politics, from the Caesars to Sunak. Thank you very much. Uh, it's absolutely great, I think, for both of us to be here. And we're, we're going to do this as a bit of a, it's a, a real conversation, but... Um, with some unreal bits, I think. <laughs> and I wanted to start simply by asking Rory about what we're talking about when we talk about power. You know, I'm tempted to say, look, you've got, you know, one of the country's most successful podcasts. You've got a book which is, you know, week after week in the bestseller list. You've got, uh, you're involved in a charity that has got enormous impact. Does that feel like power? Or I think I would put it better to say, what does it feel like to feel you have power? And how far are kind of traditional politics always set to stage in that? Right. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I find that um, one of the secrets of modern British life is the sense that it often feels as though there isn't any power anywhere. And so politicians spend a lot of time, I don't know, thinking that journalists have power and the journalists maybe think the business people have power and the business people maybe think the politicians have power and so on and so forth. The reality of being a minister is very, very odd. So when I was um, Secretary of State for International Development, I was in charge of a budget of 20 billion US dollars a year. So 13,000 million pounds a year. With almost no constraint, it was legally protected by an act of parliament. There was no interference from the treasury. There was no interference from the prime minister. And yet oddly, it didn't feel like the kind of power that I had when I was running a small charity on the ground in Afghanistan. Hmm. So when I was on the ground in Afghanistan, I was under buildings. We had a couple of hundred staff. I could see water supply going in. I could see clinics being built. I could get involved in 
the design of a balcony or worry about where the electricity system was coming in. As a Secretary of State, you sit in an enormous office and you sign bits of paper. That's like being a Roman emperor, you know. We'll come back to this. This is so. I, I want to, I'm going to throw that back at you. Um, it, it is something that interests me. I mean, you have the idea that somebody like the Emperor Hadrian has a lot of power, but of course, he can only be in one place at one time. Now he travels around a great deal, but wherever he is, he's just here. Yeah. And what he's doing at the other end of the empire is presumably. A, takes a certain amount of time for the message to get through, but B, is dependent on person after person after person. He can't actually, I don't know if he's standing in Britain, worry too much about exactly what's happening in the design of a forum in Spain. That's true. And in the Roman Empire, you can explain if you want to. I don't think it's the complete explanation. But you can explain the powerlessness of a person apparently in power on practical infrastructural grounds. You know, that, you know, you've got your governor in Bithynia and he's asked you a question, but the letter's taken three months to get to you and it's going to take three months for you to send the reply, by which time he's going to have to have made his own mind up. You know, you cannot control that. And I think ancient historians, and I'm, you know, I'm guilty here, we... We blame that, you know, on the practicalities of it. But of course, when you know, talking to someone like you and saying, well, how does it feel like to be a minister? As a minister, you can communicate instantly, but you still have that sense that things are going on around you and you're not controlling them. And in a sense, there is a, you know, where we think power is, there's often a kind of black hole where the person apparently wielding it, and I think that's an interesting word, um, is, you know, is, is sitting there wondering what the hell to do, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, this is partly I mean, something I think would be definitely worth uh, talking to Mary much more about, which is the bureaucracy. Because, of course, the reality is that, and, and Mary's wonderful book, which if any of you haven't bought, she must read, um, is very, very good on the fact that on the surface, there are very, very few civil servants working in the Roman system. A lot of soldiers, an enormous number of soldiers compared to the population, but surprisingly few people that we would describe as civil servants running this whole setup. But my experience as a minister is that the relationship, and I don't know whether this would be true of an emperor with uh, an emperor's civil servants, but certainly I changed in my life from being a civil servant. I was briefly a British soldier. I was then a diplomat in the foreign office. And I thought when I became a minister, I was just like a senior civil servant. So I could sit around a table and I could have a sort of debate, like a seminar about what to do or what not to do. And we'd come to a conclusion. I'd make a decision. It would happen. Nothing of the sort. It's completely impossible to do things like that. I realized very, very slowly that to get anything done, I had to actually do what I hated doing, which is create the three-word slogan, reach over the head to the public. So in prisons, for example, I spent um, nearly six months having a discussion on what we could do about violence in prisons. I was getting absolutely nowhere. It was only when I said to the BBC, I will resign in 12 months unless violence comes down in prisons, that I then got some power. Then suddenly I could set up an operations room 
I could focus on 10 prisons, some money came my way. The civil service sort of woke up, they had a target to aim for, and everybody got behind the idea. Um, and I, I'm, I wonder whether there's a, anything that we can see of that, whether maybe, and I, I was thinking, we were talking about this in the green room, whether emperors can't change small things, but they can occasionally pull huge levers. <laughs> so they can, for example, we were talking about, I can't remember who it is, is it Septimus Severus, who suddenly makes everybody Caracalla. a real citizen? Caracalla. Okay. So, um, so how does that work? You wake up one day and you suddenly think you're going to make everybody a Roman citizen. Those big changes are, of course, the changes that none of us can actually explain. I mean, you can see that the Roman Empire quite resiliently carries on, probably a bit by luck, um, as much as anything else. You know, they don't get found out. They don't ask too much. Um, the idea of Roman control is a very limited uh, bit of control. What you have in the middle is a guy who, if he's successful, has learned to act the part of the emperor. It's, it's performance politics, to suspect is not unlike our own. Um, and then very occasionally in the history of, what, 300 years of the Roman Empire, you find someone like Caracalla, who's a frightful bruiser by all accounts, you know, absolute hard-headed, shit-faced guy, right? Suddenly he says, every free person in the Roman Empire will be a citizen. It's the biggest grant of citizenship to uh, ever made anywhere can I, can I interrupt for a second? So this is a guy who's he's a professional military man. He's quite sort of tough. He's quite ruthless. And then suddenly he manages to do this quite extraordinary political thing. I'm not sure. I mean, he does have a good reputation with the soldiers and he kind of dresses up quite convincingly, part of the act, you know, in little military skirts. Um, um, and you know, he's, he's a guy who's gone down in history as... as in a kind of nasty. I mean, his nastiest moment was um, having his brother, who was partly a co-ruler with him, his brother Gator, murdered in the palace, um, put to death on his mother's lap. Well, Gator cried out, apparently, and this is either a hopelessly pathetic moment in Roman history or terribly poignant. He said, mummy, mummy, I'm being killed. And that Caracalla is the mastermind here. Um, he's eventually assassinated by uh, the soldiers in the middle of a pee. Actually, he's having a pee while on campaign, and they choose that as the moment to do him in. But his, his major claim to fame is this massive extension of citizenship, and we cannot understand why he did it. But, but it's possible. It's an incredibly imaginative, bold liberal political step which transforms the way the empire works. That is how we would like to see it and that appeals to us. Um, the only ancient explanation of it, the own, and we don't have to believe this, is that actually he was short of cash and he thought if he gave everybody citizenship they'd all become liable to inheritance tax. Now. Seems to me that's a sledgehammer to crack a notch, really, you know. But, uh, but it's, you know, it's 
the the madness, the craziness, or at least the inexplicability of yep. why people in government, in power, do what they do. So, so I guess the the reason I'm interested in in this emperor and what he's up to. Um, is that one, one of the odd things, certainly when you look at European politics over the last few hundred years, is that frequently these rather brutal, nasty people can occasionally do something which is really transforming and peculiar. I mean, they take power in a very, very sinister way, and then they manage to uh, achieve things. I mean, the, the classic example of this in, in the US is, is Lyndon Johnson. If you haven't read Robert Caro's extraordinary four-volume biography of, of, of Lyndon Johnson do. So Johnson is corrupt, violent. We talk about peeing. Um, uh, in his case, he was perpetually taking out his penis in front of other senators in order to impress them in the washrooms. And he insisted in essentially humiliating people with his enormous height. He was corrupt. He almost certainly had people killed. And yet he was the man who introduced the first civil rights legislation in the United States. He was a man who transformed civil rights in the United States. And so I, I, it's possible that Caracalla is, is simply uh, after the money. It's possible, I mean, or, or we can look at, um, look at Northern Ireland. Uh, Ian Pacey Jr., for some reason, that is still very difficult to understand when all his political interests were lined up with continuing to reject the peace process, having rejected the peace process since the early 1970s, towards the end of his life, flips and uses his political capital to do something very dangerous. Lyndon Johnson wiped out the Democratic Party in the South. And I think that decision is interesting because there must have been quite a lot of Romans who were very proud to be citizens, who were deeply, deeply affronted that something that they saw as very special had suddenly been given to every Tom, Dick and Harry. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, it causes all kinds of confusion. Um, one, one bit of confusion is that almost everybody in the Roman Empire ever after is called Aurelius because you take the name, you take your Roman citizen name from the person who gave you the surname of the person who gave you citizenship. So everybody suddenly is got all called the called same. after him. It's called after him. Um, but it's, it is one of those things which is... Um, and I think there isn't really another example of that quite in Roman history where this transformative moment comes out of the blue from someone who you would never remotely expect. And, and, and I still find it hard to think of Caracalla as a, as a sweet liberal guy who really wanted to extend the privileges of Roman power. You know, doesn't seem very likely to me. But that was the effect but, of what he but, did. But I guess my point is, Lyndon Johnson was definitely not a sweet, liberal, no, cuddly exactly, guy. Um, no, exactly. And I, I, I wanted to also, very interested in the book, about thinking about the size of Rome and its budget. So we, we often talk about Rome and the empire as being enormous. But in your book, I think you say the population is about 50 million people, yeah. which is smaller than the United Kingdom today. Yes. So in a sense, when this horrible man, Boris Johnson, who's ascent to power you facilitated by putting him on a stage. Um, uh, fair call. All, you know, all your calls, you um, Becomes prime minister. He is actually governing more people uh, than a Roman emperor. And he's also involved in much more 
dimensions of people's lives than a Roman emperor. I mean, a Roman emperor, you point out, is spending about 50% of the budget on the military. They're not running a national health service. They're not Mm -hmm. running a full education system. They're not in any of the sort of thing. They're not running a welfare state. They're not running pensions. So the... A modern British government, to some extent, has more power than any Roman emperor could yeah. could dream of over a smaller yeah. territory. Yeah. I mean, I think Rome is this extraordinary um, pretense of power when actually the guy in the middle, closer you get, you see that he, there's very, very little that he can do. And that leads you to the question, and it leads us to the question, I think, too, is if the guy, the figurehead, is not doing this, who the hell is? And I, in, in Rome, I, that is almost impossible, I think, to pin down. I mean, what we see is we see a, um, a, two things simultaneously. We see the Roman emperor, if they're good at it, performing the rituals of power. And we see people on the outside the critics, at least, worried actually that all that the Roman emperor is, is an actor. And I, that doesn't seem to me to be too far from some of our anxieties. I mean, I'm not, a, you know, I, 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 I'm not wanting to attack Rishi Sunak here, but um, I, I think one place where we saw that was when he went out just to demonstrate the British populace that we were all in it together with fuel prices, you know. And he was filling up a, a smaller car than he had ever owned, using a petrol pump that he was clearly very inexperienced at and not quite knowing how to pay. Now, at that point, we say, is that guy, is he, is he just a bad actor? You know, and where do we put the boundary between you know the authentic leader and the guy who's playing at it? And and it's 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 fascinating actually. If you look at a lot of what's happening uh, on Twitter X, a lot of what's happening with AI and um, deep fakes, a lot of it is about exposing apparent disconnects between who they seem to be in the public and who they really are. Yeah, and it's it's one of the real tricks of the deep yeah. fakes. So. Yeah. There was one actually about Rishi Sunak where um, you see him failing to pull a pint and a woman standing behind him looking in horror. Turns out this is untrue. Turns out this is a faked up photo, but it's very, very successful because it hits an instinct we have that, of course, he wouldn't be able to pull a pint. And of course, the bar, bar yeah. the lady behind the bar would not prove it. It's the same with um, a deep fake they just did on Keir Starmer where they have a sort of apparent sort of very crackly recording of him shouting at an aide for dropping his iPad. Notice these deep fakes are not really grand things. They're not no. making Keir Starmer give a speech he didn't give. It's tiny accidental court no. moments. And yeah. again, a lot of Mary's book is, is about people trying to discredit emperors with glimpses of how they behave at the dinner table or what kind of food they serve or this sort of thing. Yeah, or, or I mean, I think in the case of Nero, um, you know, a lot of these lurid anecdotes have actually got much more bottom in them about, about 
an analysis of empire than um, most people ever realize. I mean, we love the stories, or classical historians love the stories about you know, Nero going to the theater, and of course, he's desperate to be an actor, and he demeans himself because he performs on the stage, and uh, he is, he's so vain that he has the theater doors locked so that no one can leave the performance um, until he's finished, you know, and there are wonderful stories about women giving... You've actually done that tonight. His own. That's true. Don't try to leave, guys. Don't try. Um, You know, women give birth, so I hope there's no... (laughs) hope that's not going to happen. Women give birth and and, uh, others pretend to drop down dead so they can be carried out. And... (laughs) And these are great. You're laughing and I laugh, and I think they're wonderful anecdotes. Uh, and, but they're more than that. Because actually, what they're saying is not just Nero was crazy, you know, and look how vain he was. They're saying, here is the emperor being an actor for real. And what does that tell us? about how he normally is. Is he ever not an actor? I, I also think some of the characters in your book, I mean, it, Mary opens with this description of this extraordinary young teenager who comes over from Homs in Syria and becomes the Roman emperor in his, in his early teens. And I wonder with a lot of these people, the things for which they're criticized. So Nero is criticized for being an actor. Elagabalus is criticized for apparently trying to change his gender. Uh, yeah. Commodus gets it in the neck because he appears in gladiatorial fights. But to some extent, one wonders whether one doesn't sympathize with these young men being <laughs> trapped in a role and that maybe, you know, maybe, goodness, Nero probably does think when he talks whatever his Roman equivalent for therapist is, I've always wanted to be an actor. actor. <laughs> You know, and he says, you know, what an artist dies with me when, you know, his famous last words. Um, because they, they really have that option, right? You, you're made an emperor and you're supposed to be a pretty kind of... Yeah. But you're supposed to, you know, grow a big beard like Hadrian and all. Well, I only... Look, let me give you a tip. You only grow a big beard if you're a second century emperor. So I tell you, if you ever wonder how to tell emperors apart, a good tip is that if they've got a beard, they're second century. And you don't think that's Hadrian also trying to show he's one of the men, macho soldier kind of... Or he's trying to show that he's a Greek philosopher. You know, fine. How do you know? But I, I think that... I suppose when I was writing the book, and I wanted to turn this on to you in a way, because I want to know how sorry I should feel for you. Um, very, very, very sorry. sorry. Very, very sorry. Very, sorry. You know, I thought in the end, look, I, you know, I hate autocracy. I've been brought up to think that it's vile and awful, and I still kind of think that. I still do think that. But, you know, I looked at these ordinary people, you know, with all their frailties, having to pretend that they were the rulers of the known world in an impossible um, administrative structure, not knowing what was going on. And in particular, I think, knowing at some level, if they thought about it, that no one would ever tell them the truth anyway. I thought this was, you know, this was a job from hell. Then I thought, well, how does, how does that equate with both ministerial or prime ministerial power in this country. I mean, 
do do I imagine when you're Secretary of State or when you're Prime Minister, who tells you the truth? Mary Beard and Rory Stewart there. Rory Stewart's memoir is Politics on the Edge, and Mary Beard's recent book is Emperor of Rome, Ruling the Ancient Roman World. You can find all of the books we've enjoyed today, and a few more, in Intelligence Squared's 12 Books of Christmas list, which we'll link to in the episode description. And we'll be dipping into some more in the run-up to Christmas too, so do join us for those. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared Holiday Reads. I've been Connor Boyle. And I've been Faye Adabita. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>